Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 75 of UAB Green and Told, original debut July 4th, 2022. Through our podcast, we have the chance to share stories from members of the UAB community. Want to listen to past episodes? We can be found at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold on Spotify or the Apple Podcast app. While there, leave a written review so other alumni can find us as well. I'm Greg Berry, a UAB alum and assistant director in the UAB Office of Alumni Affairs. In July of 1969, Neil Armstrong made a small step onto the moon that truly was a giant leap for humans all over the world. That feat of getting to the moon was incredible. But imagine going further into the depths of space, much further. That's exactly what today's podcast guest, Dr. Sharon Cobb, is working on doing through her job at NASA. It's almost like watching dreams develop. Those dreams extend far above the clouds, and for many, they are unimaginable. But as Sharon will share, her team is tasked with not only helping take astronauts to places they've already been, but destinations that are still pretty much unexplored. We're talking about putting together Artemis missions and a plan to go back to the moon and then on to Mars that will last for generations. She's part of a team that has its sights set on the red planet, which is merely 140 million miles away. You can't just pack an overnight bag. It'll take us about nine months to get there, so it's not a short trip. You have to be able to take everything you need with you. Buzz Lightyear has famously and confidently uttered a phrase many of us have repeated over and over again, to infinity and beyond. The limitlessness and boundlessness possibilities of space travel is incredible to consider. Dr. Sharon Cobb has probably thought about Buzz Lightyear's catchphrase often. As a member of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, how could she not? But before NASA came Birmingham, the city where she grew up in, as an inquisitive child. I was just very curious about how things worked. Um, And I was always cutting things up and looking at them under my microscope and just trying to understand how things work and, you know, what made things come together. And um, I'm an only child. And so I followed my dad around and um, helped him change the brakes on the car and um, watched him as he did woodworking in his basement. And I think I even made sawdust pies out of the the dust that came off of his saw. So kind of got interested in how things worked and and just always had a real curiosity about um, learning more and trying to figure out the world around me. And let's be real, most girls at that age aren't going around working on cars, working on woodwork (laughs) projects. What did your friends think at that time? You know, they knew I was somewhat of a geek. I mean, um, Any future engineer has to has to have some of that curiosity. Um, I also did things like played with Barbies and climbed trees with my my friend next door. So you know, I, I was a fairly round, well rounded. Just uh, had an opportunity to do a few unusual things. Did you ever think that you'd have a career at NASA, working you know on the space program and helping with all that? When I was growing up, I had really no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, I guess as with a lot of people, you just kind of watch things around you and and see what interests you. And um, I had no idea that my career would eventually be with NASA and I'd have the great opportunities that I've had. I think I kind of got interested um, by a tour that I took with my dad. We had a family tour of of the plant where he worked. It was U.S. Steel. And I watched um, as they poured hot metal into molds and I watched as they formed and shaped 
um, steel railroad ties. And I was just fascinated by the idea that you could take one form of a material and turn it into something completely different. And over the years, I just, I had a great opportunity and those kind of interests just kind of turned into a really neat career. Was it that trip to your dad's plant that kind of made you decide, you know, I, I think engineering might be the thing that I wanted to do at that point? Or were you thinking, all right, maybe I'll go to school and study something else, but have my hands in on something like that as well? Well, when I took that tour, I don't really think I knew what that meant from a career standpoint. Um, but I had a really smart guidance counselor when I was in high school. And she said, if you're interested in math and science, you should consider engineering. And I thought, well, I don't even know what engineering is. But she sent us to college engineering open houses. And so I, that was kind of where I got the first connection between materials and what engineering could include. And so I went to several local colleges. UAB was one of the ones that I visited. And um, that's kind of where I made that connection between that fascination with materials and manufacturing and how things work and what an engineer could do for a career. So what sold you on UAB at the time? Here you are, a young lady in Birmingham, living in Birmingham, and you ultimately chose to stay in Birmingham. I did. Um, there, there were a lot of advantages of, um, of going to UAB. I could tell from that engineering open house that it was a really good, strong engineering school. They had a lot of different disciplines in engineering, so I knew I could, you know, have, would have several to choose from. I wasn't committing real early on. Um, I could live at home. That was a, definitely an advantage at the time. And, um, you know, I, I could be there and still have some of the friends that I had um, growing up. And so it just, it made a lot of sense. I knew it was a great engineering school. It had a great reputation for its medical school. And so um, it just made sense. At what point did kind of the, the future kind of clear up and, and you really understood what you wanted to do after college? Because I'm sure at the beginning, you're not going, hmm, all right, NASA. The, the first exposure that I got to NASA and that potential for a career was um, in my graduate school work. My senior advisor for our, my graduate work um, had a summer faculty position at NASA. And so for two summers, she went and spent um, about two and a half months um, working on a project at NASA. And I kind of got involved with that. And so the second year that she was up there, she said, hey, um, we're doing this research. You've been working on it back in your lab at UAB. Um, why don't you come spend the summer up here and kind of work in the lab with me? And that's where I first got to work on NASA projects at NASA. And after um, after doing that, I was given the opportunity to, um, to go to work for NASA and I stayed engaged in that same kind of research for about 15 years. It was just a great way to kind of see the, the beginnings of research at NASA and the exciting things they were doing at the time we were doing research um, on the space shuttle. Um, as a part of that, I learned about the fact that you have to build hardware and you have to build equipment that can do these experiments on these on the space shuttle and eventually on the International Space Station. And so kind of got interested in building hardware as a part of that. You mentioned that you're doing research on the shuttle. The shuttle program obviously was already in place as you got there. So what kind of research were you doing? Because from an outsider's like, hey, it's already established, it's already going. So what can actually be done? Well, the space shuttle was a great platform for doing microgravity experiments. 
So if you think about it, gravity is pulling things down to the earth and that has a lot of influence on the way things are produced in, in a factory on the ground. But if you can take away gravity, like we were doing when we were flying the space shuttle, we were, we were in a, what they call a microgravity environment, just a teeny tiny amount of gravity. And so it's like removing a variable. And so you could do all kinds of new experiments. And so with the space shuttle, we had about 16 days that we could do those experiments. And then when we started building the International Space Station, that gave us an ability to do those experiments for months or, or weeks on end. So it just really opened up a whole new scientific exploration. At what point did you start working on the International Space Station? Was it from kind of ground zero and you're at the, you know, you're at the door when everything was starting? I actually started um, doing some things kind of on the side when they were looking at designing and building the space station, we had what was called um, a neutral buoyancy simulator. And so astronauts would come to the Marshall Space Flight Center and test and learn how to build things in a low gravity environment, because in a weightless environment, like you're swimming in a swimming pool, you know, you're kind of floating. The astronauts could, could be neutrally buoyant and make themselves feel like they were doing these um, construction techniques um, in space. And so I got to be a support diver and I ran a camera um, as they were doing some of those um, practice runs. And so I kind of got started on it early on. And then once we started constructing the space station and it became obvious that we were going to have a laboratory platform up there, then we started working on um, furnaces and hardware where we could do those experiments on the space station. So kind of put things all in perspective, what year did you start working on the ISS? What year did you stop working on the shuttle program? Once the International Space Station came on board, it's been, it's been in existence since the year 2000. And so while it took us a little while to get started and to get all the experimental hardware up there that we needed to do these experiments, the shuttle was the one that was providing access to the International Space Station and taking those payloads back and forth, taking the equipment back and forth. Um, but for us, um, it, it took a few more years before we had the furnaces up there that allowed us to actually do those experiments. So most of my career was spent doing, um, the early years were spent doing experiments on the space shuttle. You know, most people see astronauts and that's kind of the face of, you know, the space program. But there's a lot going on behind the scenes. What kind of cool and fun things were you doing to kind of be a support system for the astronauts who are the frontline workers? Well, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, um, I got to do some training, um, help them, support them as they were doing their training in that neutral buoyancy simulator. But I also got to do some neat things where I got to go to Houston and train some of the astronauts on the experiments that they'd be doing on the space shuttle for us. So they go through a two-year program where they are learning about the systems on, at the time, the space shuttle. They're learning about um, experiments. They're learning about all the things that they'll be doing when they're on the space shuttle or the, or the International Space Station. And so I got to give them some just basic training in why they were doing the experiments that they were doing. And so it was great to, to see those young astronauts come up and then watch their careers as they've moved on and done really exciting things and done some of that research for us. You've kind of transitioned from Huntsville to DC to Huntsville. Talk a little bit about what the differences of the locations are for you as a worker for NASA. Our headquarters office for NASA is located in Washington, DC. And so much of what we do um, depends on developing policy and de working with 
our stakeholders to make sure that we have plans in place and that we're doing um, the work that the nation wants us to do in space. And so you think about um, the International Space Station, you think about what we're doing now with the Artemis missions and going back to the moon and building the space launch system, this most powerful rocket that we've ever built. And all of that um, requires a lot of careful thought and planning in order to put all the pieces in place that you need to construct um, a plan that, that's so complex and that has so many pieces and that has such a long duration. I mean, we're talking about putting together Artemis missions and a plan to go back to the moon and then on to Mars that will last for generations. And so my time in headquarters was really exciting because you get to see a lot of that planning. You get to see um, all the things that influence um, what we get to do as an agency and you get to see how science um, some of the spacecrafts that we send out to observe other planets um, interact with some of the other things that we're doing. For example, um, we can put much larger spacecraft on the space launch system than you can on any other launch vehicle. And so um, it just it, it increases the types of things and the opportunities that we have for exploring um, our universe. Talk a little bit about your position as associate program manager for space launch system, because you mentioned that you're working with the Artemis program. But what do you actually do with that program? What are you overseeing? I'm overseeing the just day-to-day -day operations, the budgets, the schedules, um, what we call program management. And so that has all different aspects. It's both technical and then it also we have um, to make sure that we have the resources that we need, whether that's people or money or budgets. And then we have to make sure that we're um, meeting the schedules that we've um, committed to to make sure that all of this fits together. So overseeing um, a large group of teams. Um, there's just a tremendous um, number of contractors that are involved in building this hardware. And so we're coordinating and, um, and working with all of those teams to make sure that it all comes together successfully. When did the Artemis program kind of get its legs and when did you join in the process? Was it from the beginning again? In 2011, in the fall, Congress gave us the authority to move forward with what was called the Space Launch System and the capsule, the Orion crew capsule that will fly on top of that rocket system. And so I came on board with the SLS program in, in January of 2012, and I've been a part of the program um, since almost the very beginning. And it's been just an incredible experience. When we first started this program, we took some of the most um, reliable components from the space shuttle that we were flying out. At that point, we, were, um, we, were, we knew that we would be replacing the space shuttle. It was just a paper rocket. We had a lot of um, drawings that we were putting together, making sure all the interfaces were correct. Um, but we've gone from there to where we are today, where all of the elements have been built, they've been integrated, they're sitting on the mobile launcher, and they're at the Kennedy Space Center. We're in preparations for launch later this summer. So what is the timeline for the first launch? I assume it's going to be a test launch um, just to make sure everything goes as planned. So what are we looking at in terms of leading into that day? The first test flight um, is called Artemis 1, and you're right, there will be no crew on the first flight. Um, the second flight will have crew, and but both of those flights will go further than we've ever been. Um, we'll go around the backside of the moon um, and, and check out all the equipment before um, we come back for the second flight and put crew on that. Um, so 
At this point, we're at the very tail end of all of our testing for that. We've integrated all the systems together, and this is the first time all those systems have been um, put together on the systems and on the infrastructure at Kennedy that will actually fly the vehicle. So we've been going through what we call a wet dress rehearsal, and that's where we put fuel in all the tanks, we test all the electrical connections, all the interfaces, and make sure that everything operates properly. So we found a few things as we went through that the first couple of times. And so right now we're in the process of finding all those things, making a few adjustments, um, changing out a couple of components. Um, but we're really close to being ready to roll back out to the pad and do that wet dress rehearsal one more time. How nerve wracking is it being a part of the entire process? Because this is this is history. Let's be honest. It's something that hasn't been done in four or five decades. It's really exciting to be a part of this mission. Um, it is something that it's been a long time since we've done. We flew the space shuttle very successfully, but it's been a long time since we've sent humans back to the moon. And so while it's um, there's an incredibly complex system involved. We're just really confident in the team that's put this together and all of the tests that we're doing to make sure that everything um, operates the way it's supposed to give us tremendous confidence um, that we'll be ready to launch when that day is, um, is, is here. You mentioned Artemis 1, Artemis 2. Are there plans for 3, 4, and 5 to keep going back to the moon to do different things, to do different research as well? There are a lot of plans um, for where we go from here. So Artemis 1 is, is a test flight. Artemis 2 will have crew on it. Artemis 3 will have a human lander system on it. So the first flight of the crew will just be a kind of a let's check out all the systems. And then after that, for Artemis 3, we'll be sending crew to the moon um, with that human lander system. Um, and then from there, we start building on that our fourth flight. Um, we'll have an upgraded um, upper stage for the rocket, and that'll give us even more powerful capabilities so we can take even more equipment to the moon. We can take not only crew, but we can take cargo with us on that flight. It's called a co-manifested flight. And so as we continue to build this capability, we'll evolve the capability of the rocket so that we can start thinking about putting things like habitats on the moon. So. Um, we have a partnership with some international partners that will be helping us build what we call IHAB or the International um, Habitat. And so that will fly um, on the space launch system as well. And so that's just kind of an example of the things that you have to put in place, the infrastructure that you need if you're going to try to live and work on the moon. And that's ultimately our goal is, is to learn how to live and work on another surface um, as you can imagine, when we've been doing um, trips to the International Space Station, you're just a couple of days away if you need to come home. But when you're on the moon, you're 239,000 miles away. And so you've really got to learn how to work and, and have all the systems in place to be kind of self-reliant. And just think when you're going to Mars, just think about, you know, that's even further away. So um, it's, it's something that we're going to learn. We're going to practice. Um, on the moon, and then when we're ready, we'll be um, sending humans to Mars. How far off are we to having humans have a habitat on the moon? Are we talking five, ten years, or are we talking a little bit closer than that? We'll start to put some of those pieces in place pretty early on. Um, so just, I'd say within the next five to seven years, we'll start to put those building blocks on the moon. 
Um, it'll be a little bit longer than that before we're ready to go to Mars. Um, but, but all of that that we're doing in preparation um, helps us learn, helps us learn those lessons. Um, and from that, we'll learn how to, how to go to Mars with humans. And we have a rover right now on Mars. So this is a whole new ball game because we haven't sent humans even remotely close. We haven't sent them past the moon. So what is it like adapting the entire program? Because I'm sure the process that you take to go to the moon is similar, but yet it's really different than what you have to plan for a longer trip to Mars. So it is. That's one of the reasons we're um, continuing to evolve the capabilities of the rocket that we're building, Space Launch System. Um, we'll be building something called the Block 2, and it'll have even more powerful boosters and also that um, more powerful upper stage. And so that'll give us extra lift and that'll help us um, with the capability that we need to take things to Mars. It'll also um, have crew on it. But there's all kinds of other systems that you need to have in place. One of the most critical things that we're learning about is our communication system, because right now there's a long delay. There's about a 20 minute delay um, in sending communications from those robotic um, rovers that are on Mars right now. So there's a number of technologies that we're working on that will help us be more effective and efficient. There's also an entire architecture that we're looking at um, in space fueling and things like that, that will allow us to be more efficient as we try to send humans to Mars. So let's get it kind of into some of the stats between the differences between moon and Mars. You mentioned 240,000 miles to the moon. What are we talking to Mars? Um, it It's over um, 2 million miles. And so, you know, once again, you're taking that next giant leap. And so, It'll take us about nine months to get there. So it's not a short trip. You have to be able to take everything you need with you. And so it's really important that you have that extra really heavy lift capability that the SLS will provide so that you can take as much with you as is you know, conceivably possible. So is the goal with Mars to kind of do the same thing that is planned for the moon, create a habitat and make sure it's habitable, obviously, but maybe form a colony, maybe have another place for people to work and live and do different things. Absolutely. Um, the, the ultimate goal, because you're so far away, you can't just turn around and come back, is to be able to live on Mars. And so there are a number of projects that are in the works to do things like build habitats from um, the, the material that's on Mars. So you can, they do what's called in situ resource utilization. So you're learning how to form habitats from the material by using almost like a 3D printer, but on a much larger scale um, to build habitats on Mars. So, so yes, ultimately the idea would be to have um, a colony on Mars and, and to, to live there just like, um, just like we live here. We talked a little bit about how long it's going to be until we get up to the moon and we have a habitat established. What are we talking for Mars? The planning that we have in place right now um, has, has an infrastructure that would allow us um, to, to be on Mars in the 2030 timeframe, in the, into the 2030s, not 2030, but in the 2030s. Over the course of your 35 years at NASA, how have you seen the organization change and space travel change? Where we are right now is just an incredible advancement from where we were 35 years ago when I started. I mean, we were so excited about the possibility of having an international space station. That that seems like an incredible achievement, and it has been. 
We have been working 24-7 on the International Space Station for over 20 years. And that's incredibly exciting. Um, but that's that's not nearly as far away and not nearly as complex as what we're trying to do with the, the missions back to the moon and on to Mars. So it's it's almost like watching dreams develop. You know, you think you've imagined the greatest thing and the a great engineering feat and truly the International Space Station has been that. Um, but the next step is really going to test our ingenuity, um, our ability to um, to plan and to, to have the equipment that we need to send humans successfully um, to the moon and on to Mars. It's just, it's almost mind boggling to think about the fact that humans in the very near future will be walking on Mars. and. And I love to talk about things like this with with young boys and girls as they're starting to imagine what their career could be like, because those that's the generation that'll be the first ones to to walk on Mars. Did you ever imagine when you were doing the graduate work with NASA back in the mid 80s that you'd have this kind of career and be doing the historic things that you are with NASA? I had no idea um, the doors that that one little decision um, to go to graduate school, to to not go to work immediately. It just, it opened a career and, and doors that I just could have never imagined. You know, I knew about the space program. I knew it was interesting, um, but to be a part of it has just been a, a dream. I, I just, you know, it's just been incredible. Um, it has opened so many opportunities and I've had a chance to to meet so many interesting people and, and learn about their careers. And, um, and the fact that, that we're doing these things that make such a difference in our country and our ability to inspire and to research and discover and the, the opportunities and the opportunity for learning that this opens up, or um, it's just, it's incredible to be a part of. How did UAB lay the foundation for the success that you've achieved over the course of your career? UAB gave me a great foundation um, just for a good engineering um, background. And so while it opened the doors and helped me understand what I wanted to do in my career, um, it's also something that I'm just really proud of. You know, it's my hometown. It's uh, where I grew up. Um, and but it's it really allowed me to do things that I just never could have could have dreamed. Um, you've got to be willing to take some chances and you've got to be willing to um, to take opportunities that you may not know what's what's following. Um, but my career has just really been based on um, on that great foundation of an education that I got at UAB. That's Dr. Sharon Cobb. Dr. Cobb has earned two degrees from the School of Engineering. She graduated with her BS in 1985 and MS in 1987, both in materials engineering. As we've heard, she's currently an associate program manager for NASA's Space Launch System. Dr. Cobb loves her alma mater and brings a unique twist to what it means to be a blazer. Well, when I look at that green and gold and I think, yeah, that's my alma mater. I'm very proud of that. I'm proud of, of the city that I grew up in, the education that I received there. But to be a blazer um, for me has, has a kind of a different meaning because the career that I have and the things that we're doing are blazing the future um, for our country, for astronauts, for 
you know, collaboration with other countries. And it, there, it's just something that is a very special meaning to me because um, we're just, we're blazing the future of space exploration. And, um, and that's, it's kind of a, a ironic um, start to where, um, where my career has gone. Be sure to listen to previous episodes of UAB Green and Told. Check out our website at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold. Have a story to share or know someone we need to get in touch with? Email greenandtold at uab.edu. Finally, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search UAB Alumni. Thanks for listening. And until next time, go Blazers. <laughs>